0: this moment in the Old Testament. It's unlikely you'll ever forget it. It's in the book of Exodus chapter 3. God is beginning the process of formally recruiting Moses for the task of leading the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. Moses, who has been working for decades as a shepherd in the land of Midian is attracted one day by the sight of a bush that is burning but not burning up. That is the form in which the living God chose to appear to him on that day and as Moses begins to walk up to that burning bush, Exodus chapter 3 verse 5, God gives him an instruction for that moment saying to him, Moses, remove your shoes, because the ground where you are standing is holy. That passage has has echoed about in my heart, in my head, as I uh, rolled up my sleeves to to begin to work. To share from John chapter 17. It is a remarkable chapter. For in this chapter, we are invited into what, what could, arguably, but I think I think a strong case could be made that this chapter is, is a holy of holies of sorts. For the New Testament. In this chapter, we're invited into into the Lord Jesus. This is the longest recorded prayer. God the Son pouring out his heart to God the Father. It is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus we have in our New Testament. Certainly the most intimate of such prayers. It is an astonishing thing to me, that we are invited to attend to this prayer. Several authors whom I, whom I read and whom I respect have, uh, have said that this, John 17, is, is the real Lord's Prayer. Now what do they mean? Many of us have uh, memorized or even in, in artwork, uh, decorating our, our living spaces. Um, a prayer from Matthew six, from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that, that is often called the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, et cetera, et cetera, And we're not wrong to label that the Lord's Prayer, but it is worth noting that the, that prayer from Matthew six is not Jesus actually praying. It's Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. You say, well Russell, that's that's kind of a broad assertion there to say that that's not actually Jesus praying in his own behalf. Well, let me me show you why we know that. In that prayer, in the Lord's Prayer of Matthew six, Jesus asked for forgiveness. He doesn't need it. He's not praying for himself. He's modeling a prayer for us. This prayer, where we find ourselves today in John 17, is the Lord's prayer, more purely, if, it, if you will, than the model prayer found other places. It is a pivotal moment. We've been for several, for several weeks now looking at this last night of teaching in the earthly ministry of Jesus, going all the way back to the, to the washing of the disciples' feet in John 13, 13, 14, 15, 16 have been this last evening of teaching. Now Jesus is about to arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane. He enters the Garden of Gethsemane in eighteen one. So this is is the last of his discourse as he approaches the garden. Having left the upper room at the end of chapter 14, he's been walking with his disciples across the the moonlit city of Jerusalem this night before the cross. I don't know if he paused and gathered the disciples around him. I don't know that he, he, we're told he looked up to heaven, but whether he, he continued to walk at a pace or whether he was now stopped. John was led by the kind providence of God to be close enough to him to catch this prayer and led by the Spirit of God later to record it for us in his gospel, which we have. In some ways, this prayer is the pivot point between the teaching ministry of Jesus which has gone on for some years and has culminated in this last night before the cross. And then after this prayer, we come very quickly to his arrest trials and the cross. And so you have the the teaching ministry of Jesus, and then you have the, the sacrificial work of Jesus, with this prayer as sort of a fulcrum in between. And so I have have labeled this prayer the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. Many of your Bibles have a similar heading over John 17. We'll need three weeks to work through this prayer. It is is holy ground on which we stand. John chapter 17, beginning in verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, and that is all of the teaching of the evening that's led to this point. When Jesus had spoken these words, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Roman numeral one. Jesus prays regarding the authority that he, Jesus, possesses. The authority Jesus possesses, verses one and two. Letter A, we see the authority to claim glory. Now we've defined the word glory or to glorify before and I want to remind you that the, the little definitions that I give from here are generally not meant to be sort of exhaustive academic definitions. You could find broader definitions elsewhere. The definitions that I give you are sort of the, the working coat pocket definitions, the ones that you can keep handy. To glorify one is to reveal one as he is. To glorify a thing is to reveal a thing in its essence, to reveal something as it truly is. The word glory or glorify occurs five times in the verses I just read. So it's a a central idea in this first paragraph of this prayer, to glorify. It is very rare indeed in scripture that glory is attributed to a person that's not God. I can think of one example, Uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking of the lilies of the field and uh, how wonderfully arrayed they were, said that even King Solomon in his glory wasn't as well dressed as the flowers of the field. So there are occasions where the word is is meant of, of a person, but very, 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 very rarely. Overwhelmingly, when we speak of a person having glory, that person is God. And here, Jesus, uh, row number one, letter A on your outline, has the authority to claim for himself glory. Glorify your son. Now, it is also interesting to know that Jesus begins this prayer by stating, the hour has come. If you've been following our study of the Gospel of John, that phrase or phrases like it should somewhat ring a bell from near the very beginning of Jesus's ministry all the way back to John chapter two, there have been multiple occasions where someone has challenged Jesus to go ahead and get on the more full revelation of his glory, to push the Father's timetable for the work of the Messiah. And Jesus in John chapter two verse four says, the hour's not yet come. John 7, 30, he says, The hour is not yet come. In 8.20, he says, The hour is not yet come. But beginning with the last week of his earthly ministry, for the first time in John 12, 23, Jesus said, The hour has come. In 13, 1, he said, The hour has come. And here, for the last time, he says, The hour has come. It's time for who I am to be fully revealed to the world. That, by the way, will be by means of the cross. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that is the highest expression of his his earthly mission. Why he came. He claims glory for himself, but even that is for the purpose of glorifying the Father. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. You don't want glory Remember, if glory is to reveal a thing fully as it is, or a person fully as he is, the last thing you would ever do is pray for glory for yourself. The last thing I would ever want is for you to entirely know me as I am. Not that I'm actively, hypocritically hiding stuff from you, but in the words of Jack Nicholson regarding me, you can't handle the truth. The one person on earth that most knows it has committed to love me in spite of what she knows and that is my Gail. And I'm glad she loves me. The one who knows it all has committed from the cross to love me unconditionally in spite of what he knows about me. He can handle the whole truth and went to the cross to pay the price for what he knows. But I'm not praying for glory for myself. I don't want it. You don't either. But Jesus can. The authority to claim glory. Let her be the authority to secure eternity. To secure eternity. He says, You have given him authority, verse 2, over all flesh, to give eternal life. Father, you've given me the authority that I can give eternal life. I can't consider that verse without it bringing to mind Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23, which says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, most of us in the room have, have either operated a business or worked for somebody else in some enterprise. Most of us are familiar with the notion of wages. Wages happen when when you conduct yourself in an agreed upon way, either for an employer or for a client. You conduct yourself in an agreed upon way and receive in trade for so doing what you've earned in terms of payment. Wages are when you get what you've earned. Now the verse that we've still got on the screen tells you what you've earned assuming your life has been marked by sin. And if you don't think your life has been marked by sin, you either aren't paying attention or you don't know what sin is. Your life has been marked by sin, therefore what are you owed? I'll wait. Death. Death and the sentence structure of this verse, the fact that eternal life is mentioned in the second half of the parallel. The wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life, tells you that eternal applies to both parts of that comparison. So the death that is being spoken of is not mere biological shutdown like a rose bush that dies. No, this is eternal death that you are owed justly. You've earned it. It's coming on payday. Except there is a free gift. Through Jesus Christ our Lord in Romans 6.23, here affirmed by Jesus in prayer in John 17.2, he has the authority to give eternal life to all whom you, Father, have given him. It is so critical that you come to Jesus if you have not done so. Eternal life is his to give, but it is only his to give. It is only his to give. Only his, you must trust him by faith. To give, you cannot earn it. You do not deserve it and you will never be worthy of it. Hell is going to be full of people with high self-esteem who misunderstand what they have earned and misunderstand what they're worthy of and strut their way through life until life ends and their strutting collapses into hell. It is a gift. It is not based on your deserving, your earning or your worthiness. It is the free gift of the Son. And we see here also in this language another theme that we've seen throughout the the Gospel of John that we see throughout the New Testament. That, That those who are born again can be seen as a gift of God the Father to God the Son to be held by God the Son and then given back to God the Father. Now that is the New Testament's most frequent basis for our eternal security. There is no question that when viewed from a sort of horizontal, earthbound perspective, it is true to say that you must turn from your sin, you must trust Jesus by faith. I plead with you, if you have not done so, that you would receive this gift of eternal life by grace alone through faith alone. But to understand eternal security, one must view salvation not merely from the horizontal perspective, but from the vertical perspective, from the perspective of heaven. You are not kept Child of God, born-again person, follower of Jesus Christ, you are not being kept eternally secure by the strength and reliability of your grip on Jesus. No matter how good it is, it's not that good. You are being kept eternally secure, child of God, by Jesus' grip on you and that my brother my sister is omnipotent and does not relinquish those it grasps oh but if you are outside of Christ do not look elsewhere this free gift is his to give receive it receive it Roman numeral two. The access Jesus provides verses or just verse three. <clears throat> and this is eternal life. You know, we, we are, we're prone to think of eternal life as a, a there and then sort of thing. And the there and then aspects of eternal life are amazing. That we, we look, for and long for, a city not made by hands, that the reality of eternal heaven, dwelling with Jesus forever in the light of his actual presence and visible revelation of himself, visible glory, that incredible future he has provided for us. That's an astounding thing to look forward to. It's an amazing thing to look forward to. There. There is much evidence of the kindness of God in this world, to be sure, but there is also much evidence of fallenness and brokenness, sadness, insanity. If you don't understand this world to be off the rails, you must be living in a different part of it than I am. And at the end, it's dangerous and in almost all cases thus far deadly. Life's tough, and then you die. Jesus said, or Paul said, that if in this world only we have hope, we're of all people most miserable. <laughs> so there's a lot of there and then to look forward to, and we're not wrong to look forward to it. But here, here, Jesus defines eternal life in here and now terms, not just there and then terms. Look, this is eternal life, letter A on your outline, an astonishing, astounding relationship. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. We can know God. Those of us who are in Christ know God I don't know what I don't know what VIPs you've ever hung out with in a hotel in Orlando one day I rode the elevator with Geraldo Rivera yeah yeah short dude who puts too much stuff in his coffee He had gone to the lobby to get a fancy coffee, and by the time he was done, it neither looked like, smelled like, nor was remotely the same color as coffee. I don't know what he had done to it. None of my business. So from that day to this, I have a standing agreement with Geraldo. He doesn't remember me, and I leave him alone. It works fairly well. But I've talked to God this morning, and I know that he heard me. See, when you're omniscient, you don't need to divide your attention. So when I talk to him, I have his undivided attention. Because he's infinite. You might be talking to him at the same time. And if you are, you also have his undivided attention. The one who lit off the universe says, all right, Russell, what would you say to me now? And he listens. And not only has he listened to me, he has spoken to me. Today! Because he's given me his word and invited me to meet him there. Remember, the word of God is the vocabulary of the spirit of God when speaking in the heart of the child of God. You want to hear from god meet him in his word and you can know him if you are his this astounding relationship not only that relationship but also a faithful redeemer he's able to provide this eternal life access to the only true god because after the comma jesus christ whom you have sent to know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The faithful Redeemer. When I think about the sentness of Jesus, I think of John chapter eight, verse 29. John eight twenty-nine, where Jesus said, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I, I realize that my life is a sent life. He who sent me. Here in the verse before us, 17.3, he whom you have sent. In a bit, we'll come closer to the end of John. And in John chapter 20, verse 21, before he physically returned to heaven, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, but before his ascent back to heaven, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. And remember, he has repeatedly asserted, My life is a sent life. My life is an obedient life. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I am sending you. One of the the measures of discipleship in our church's purpose statement is that we would live missionally. That we would live in the awareness that our lives are not our own. We are sent. We do not define our own purpose. We do not define our own priorities. We accept the commission of our faithful Savior to be his faithful followers, and as he lived sent, so are we to live sent, representing... Our King and His Kingdom in our deeds, and all the more critically in our words, that this would be a defining characteristic of who we are. In fact, the first and foremost defining characteristic of who we are while we remain on this world, because everyone that you've ever met has earned hell. Everyone that you have ever met is going to experience the eternal wrath of God the moment they depart this earth. Unless they trust Jesus Christ by faith turning from their sin and you are positioned to bear that message, bear it, bear it. Roman numeral three, the achievement Jesus pursued. (coughs) Verses four and five, letter A, his mission accomplished. Verse four, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, ahead of him still looms the cross, ahead of him still looms, thus the resurrection and the ascension. But here he says, you know what? I've gotten it done. In what sense? What has he completed pretty well at this point? Well, I suggest Hebrews 4.15. The author of Hebrews, writing of Jesus, says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. As Jesus prays to his Father here in this moment, he has completed 33 years of sinless living. There's there's something of a whew in this. The temptations Jesus faced were real, and, and like the temptations you face. He was tempted to pride, he was tempted to greed. He was tempted to lust, he was tempted to covetousness, he was tempted to disrespect for his parents, he was tempted to all of it. He has shown us by his example that those temptations can be successfully overcome. Now, at the same time, his track record is not one that we will ever match. But point by point, he has shown us temptation can be dealt with without collapsing into sin. And, and that labor of everyday living without sin now comes to an end as he faces arrest, trial, and crucifixion. His mission accomplished. And then let her be his majesty anticipated. Verse five, and now, Father. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. (laughs) Can I paraphrase? Dare I paraphrase that? With a strong admission of my inherent inadequacy. I think he's saying something like Father I can't wait to be home. I just can't wait to be home. You know, you and I can look forward to heaven, and we should. If you're a follower of Christ, you should. But we can't look back and remember it. He could. He could. I am led to think of Philippians chapter two. This won't be on the screen either, but you can come with me if you want. Philippians chapter two, verses five through 10. As Jesus says, I look forward to having back with you the glory that was mine in eternity past, which glory I have set aside as I have taken on humanity in these years. Philippians two, beginning in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verses 9 and 10 are the reflection of John seventeen five. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you don't know Jesus this morning, may you respond to his glorious revelation of himself for the sake of the glory of God the Father and may you turn from your sin and trust him. You may wanna come down front, there'll be various of us here who'd love to talk with you about what it is to follow Jesus. And we would grow by doing that and you would grow by participating that as well, but that is not what is critical. What is critical is that you turn from your sin, cry out to him in repentance and trust him by faith. If you do that, you're gonna wanna tell somebody. Child of God, confess him. Fulfill your role. Speak out. We do not have the innate glory he has, but we can reflect his glory into a world that desperately needs to know who Jesus is and what he has done confess Him opportunistically and enthusiastically and deliberately and convictionally and repetitively.